Greetings. Hello and welcome. The archival recording you are about to hear was sourced from live streaming audio in an effort to expand content reach. I have decided to repurpose the show as an audio podcast. I have done my best to remaster the audio quality for your ears, but I have chosen to leave its content and length unedited. So you may hear reference to visual cues not described in said audio. If you'd like to see the original live streaming video podcast this recording comes from, please head over to youtube.com slash C slash Frumis Films LLC or just search Frumis, F-R-U-M-E-S-S. And don't forget to like, share, and subscribe. Audio from episode to episode will also vary in quality. Sorry about that. Thank you for tuning in and listening. Jeff from us. Okay, we're live. Check, check, check. One, two, one, two. How we sounding? Creamy, I hope. Creamy is a good way to be. Creamy like some ranch dressing, some Caesar salad dressing, some delicious garlicky butter sauce drizzled over some shrimp scampi at some red lobster somewhere on Central Avenue. Saturday night, all you can eat, blue, fuzzy, wonderful drinks that you may or may not get hung over from because there's so much sugar in them, I guess, maybe, I don't know. Welcome, <clears throat> welcome to the daily broadcast or whatever the hell this is, ah. Uh, I hope I am coming in clear. Uh, what are we going to talk about today? We're going to talk about alien versus aliens. Okay, I I saw this on uh, Den of Geek, which is a great website that got you know they do a lot of a lot of different things, and I was really taken aback by the title, very clickbaity sort of title, which we've commandeered. Uh, so this is from Den of Geek, and it's by David Crow and Don Kay. And these two guys are discussing Alien versus Aliens, which is the better movie. And already, I have not read this article. I'm going in blind, like I always do. But I have to tell you, I'm, gonna, I'm just going to make a prediction right here. I don't know what these guys are going to say in their article, but for me, right off the bat, this is like comparing apples and oranges. Probably going to say that a lot as we discuss this, this is apples and oranges. Alien and Aliens are two different complete, two completely different films that are both brilliant masterpieces in their own right. And it's just funny how both of them star Sigourney Weaver as Ripley. You know, they, they take place, the continuation of the same story, but the tone could not be more different. They're just, they're just such different films. You know, Alien, I, you know, I don't hear this talked about enough. We, you hear about a lot about the different themes and, you know, things that are going on in Alien. Um, but one thing that never gets discussed is that Alien is also kind of like a haunted house movie. In addition to being a, a slasher with an extraterrestrial in it, in addition to be, in addition for it to Alien being all the different things that it is, it's also a haunted house movie that takes place on a spaceship. And I just feel like that doesn't get talked enough about that the Nostromo, Nostradamo, Nostromo, 
is very much like a haunted house. What's going on, Donald? Thank you for joining us. We're talking about alien versus aliens today. All right, so let's read. Let's read what our what our friends David and Don. Let's see what they how they break this down, and I'll interject along the way. Thirty five years ago, James Cameron James Cameron's Aliens opened in theaters, stunning audiences, and surprising even the most jaded critics. Here was a much belated sequel to a Hollywood blockbuster that was seven years old. And at the time when sequels were synonymous with soulish, soulless cash grabs, yet in so many ways, Cameron's follow-up took the ideas introduced by Ridley Scott and company in Alien and ran with them. Nothing could be truer. I 100% agree. And just as I... So here, Donald says it right here. Aliens, I mean, even if you really want to break it down to its most basic rudimentary form, alien is horror and aliens is action. And that's the way it works. And, you know, I think that the thing that makes aliens work better than anything else is that it really does take what takes what came before it, honors it. And then does goes in a completely different territory, builds on the mythology that's already there. No, just about, I mean, if you include the deleted scene that's in Alien, where it shows that uh, Tom Skerritt's character, he's still alive, and that the alien keeps them alive and puts them in cocoons and stuff. Well, I guess I guess that still kind of works with what happens in Aliens. Point being that just about everything that happens in Alien like is still valid it's not like they haven't changed the mythology the mythology they've just added to the mythology they're like okay well where do those who lays those eggs a friggin' queen alien this giant queen oh they're like a colony you know it just totally turns the, it does it turns the whole thing on its head so it's it, it's it's a, one of those rare times where a sequel takes um doesn't rehash what came before it and explores different um different territory with the same subject subject matter and and that's and you know what else does a great job of that friggin dawn of the dead and night of the living dead right like we're like you know it's almost like you're thinking you're just thinking like where's the best place to go hide out a mall let's make a movie about that makes total sense same thing well what 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 laid those eggs a queen you know oh we got to go back to the planet oh look the queen's taken over you know it all works um, more than just adding an S in the title, Aliens marked an entire shift in tone and even genre. Rather than horror, we were now in the realm of action. Instead of hiding in the shadows, the sequel overwhelmed the audiences with spectacle. Like the poster said, this time it's war. Yeah, I mean, all of a sudden, we're introduced to these Marines. We're introduced to like, you know, travel, you got to travel on a ship to go and exterminate this, these, these aliens. You know what I mean? It, it, it just, it, it just, it, 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 it opens up in so many different ways. And yet at the same time, we're returning to the planet, uh, LV-426, where, where they came from or where the, the derelict ship had landed. It just, God, it's, it's great. It's really great. With near-universal praise, Aliens even earned an Oscar nomination. I did not know that. For star Sigourney Weaver in a role she'd already played once back in 1979. 
Hence, many fans have spent years and decades arguing which is the actual better movie. The Ridley Scott chiller that started it all, or the James Cameron thriller that blew the concept into the stratosphere? We'll sit back because Den of Geek movies section editor David Crow and West Coast correspondent Don Kay are going to settle this debate once and for all. I didn't know this was really a debate. I don't think of it necessarily as a debate. I don't think, like I said, it's like trying to compare an apple and an orange. Like you just go, oh yeah, it just, you know, they're on the same team. And just because it it, it evolves into something else, I don't think anybody is going to sit there and say that aliens is better than alien or alien is better than aliens. It just doesn't work that way. It does. It goes from being a chiller to being a thriller and just, it's great. It's really, really great. I did not know that she almost won a, an Oscar for for the Ripley in the sequel. I think that is kind of, that in and of itself is kind of unheard of, if you would imagine. Um, S. Lee says it's kind of like Road Warriors, uh, Road Warrior actually being Mad Max too. A little bit, a little bit. You know, the the difference there is Alien is a fully formed masterpiece, while Mad Max is a little bit half-baked. I'm a big Mad Max guy, don't get me wrong. But Mad Max, uh, they didn't get to film. 15 to 20% of the film was not even shot. So you're not looking at the complete vi- you know, vi- visual vision from the, from the filmmaker, from George Miller. You're looking at something that was, that was created in the editing room. And not to say that films aren't created in the editing room, but you know what I mean? Like, it's just not, it's not, it wasn't what we were supposed to get. And, you know, it kind of, I think it's kind of tragic because in a way, Mad Max is actually sort of anti-climatic, climatic, climatic, climatic. It just sort of, you know, it. you don't really see the revenge part. I mean, you do a little bit, but, you know, especially with the end, which inspired the Saw films. For those who don't know, Saw, the guys from Saw, um, Lee and James got the idea to do Saw from what happens to Johnny the boy after Mad Max uh, handcuffs his ankle and hand uh, to to the bumper and hands him a, a hacksaw. Tonight's episode is sponsored by uh, Cherry Bubbly, a nice vintage. I'm a big fan. Nice and refreshing on a hot summer day. Um, no, Lee, thank you. Thank you for uh, your contribution as well. So let's let's see what let's see what they what these guys bust into. David Crow says, for many for more years than I care to remember, I have heard science fiction fans and genre aficionados say that James James Cameron's Aliens is one of the rare sequels that is better than the original. Okay, you know what? That is true. That is true. When people talk about it talk about sequels that surpass the original. I think they do it in Scream, as a matter of fact. That is a thing. I'm wrong. That is a thing. And I've definitely heard that before. Um, Donald says, Alien shows the corporate greed. The gritty portrayal of the Space Marines is great. I mean, the corporate greed, that theme is elaborated on in Aliens, but it really does begin in the original because the the company sends them out there on purpose to get infected. You know, that's like, you know, one of the big allegories of the original Alien, it's interesting, both films 
deal with motherhood in completely different ways. The original Alien deals with motherhood by way of force. I don't want to use that R-A-P-E word. You know what I mean? Uh, they use, you know, the idea of, 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 of becoming impregnated against your will and having this thing rip out, rip out of your body. And the fact that they call the computer mother, that your mother would allow this to happen to you. I mean, it's just, there's, the crew is expendable and Ash is in on the plot. It's, it's really, I'm going to do another video about that separately. Um, th th you know, that's, that's, in addition to everything that's going on in Alien, there's this ginormous twist that just turns the whole movie on its head that you don't get in Aliens. Aliens is a pretty much a straightforward film. You know, we know what the, you know, we pretty much know what the intentions are from the beginning of the film. Alien does this sort of twist reversal where, as it turns out, them coming to the planet was not by mistake at all. The company uh, had them, Waylon, whatever, had them go out there to investigate it, hoping that one of them would be able to bring back a creature intact. And it's revealed that the crew didn't even know that Ash, or it's never stated in the film, at least. Maybe they did know. It's never stated in the film until we see him go crazy. Ash is a robot. He's an android. They're, they're androids in, in this future. And um, it's just a great reveal, and it's a great, you know, betrayal. And it just sort of turns the... It adds an extra layer of the movie. This this creature, this alien, this Starbeast is not the only enemy here. It's the, the company is the enemy. They're fighting so many different forces in that kind of way. Um, and then it's more straightforward with the Paul Reiser character in Aliens. But we knew we know it from going from the beginning. We know it. Um that action-heavy cliches are somehow an improvement over probing immersive horror that lingers in the mind like a waking nightmare. To this day, it is baffling. That's one other thing I want to say real quick about aliens versus alien. You know, talking about the mother themes, and then it flips over. Ripley goes from being, like, kind of forced, you know, it's like kind of like this forced motherhood, whatever thing, you know, this R.A., R-A-P-E scenario um, to like adopting a small child and becoming a mother. And these two, it, it culminates in this battle of motherhood. These two, these two mothers are battling for their broods. You know, Ripley's protecting Newt and the queen is protecting her eggs. And we see, you know, in order for Ripley to even be able to you know, um, compete has to get into the, the you know, the loader, the, that crazy machine. It's a wonderful action film. It really, really is. It's a, you know, action monster film. Um, but yeah, that it t turns the, the motherhood thing into not like a, it turn, it, it's more of a positive look at motherhood in the sequel. But it's interesting how they're able to carry that thing, not just corporate greed, but they carry over this mother, this, this whatever, you know, parental, you know, theme thing going on as well um for all of aliens undeniable high octane thrills it lacks a fraction of the existential dread an infinite mystery which makes alien one of the best science fiction films ever made they really do 
They don't tell you anything. You go to the derelict ship. You don't know who this space jockey is. You don't know why this ship is here. You, you don't know. You really don't know anything. You just you go in. And what's very interesting is, you know, the the movie kind of works in three. It has this perfect three act structure. And really, you know, there's this whole thing about like, you know, Ripley is right all along. Don't let them in. Don't open. We must keep them quarantined. We don't know what they could bring onto the ship. And it's Ash that allows them, I believe, to come onto the ship, if I'm not mistaken. Um, originally engineered by screenwriter Dan O'Bannon, who wrote and directed one of my favorite films of all time, The Return of the Living Dead, as a haunted there they go. They said it. They said it. That's the first time I've ever read that out loud. I first came to that observation when I, the last time I saw it in the movie theater uh, on its 40th anniversary, the Alamo screened Alien. And I also thought it was a haunted house movie in space directed by Ridley Scott and a legion of collaborators that elevated the concept into something unwaverly unwaveringly oppressive in its nihilism that probably probably including uh mr mr geiger there geiger geiger the nostromo spaceship at the center of the film might be haunted by an alien organism but so is the film itself half of the movie's design was dreamed up by conceptual artists ron cobb and chris foss who invoke a grungy dilapidated vision dilapidated vision of our future it's kind of like the star wars future, like the used future sort of aesthetic. Um, uh, among the stars, that still feels real in its sweatiness. And the rest was masterminded by H.R. Geiger, who designed the now iconic alien creature, as well as the derelict space jockey ship that the organism's egg is found on. Now, they call it a xenomorph in all you know types of you know extended universe fiction but the i don't think they ever use that term in the films you never hear them call it a xenomorph that's just what they call it because it takes on the characteristics of of its host you know what i mean that kind of thing uh the in the intentionally desperate sensibility sensibilities creates a genuine culture shock in the film that remains unsettling long after you know what john hurt's last meal looks like john hurts john hurt the brilliant british actor who's no longer with us he gets the the chest burster comes through his chest in the tradition of hp lovecraft it is there is sort of a weird lovecraftian element to it too i would say uh the film's heroes have ventured into the unknown or forbidden discovering a beast truly alien in nature and beyond our comprehension an a beast that has that has acid for blood uh to know a fragment of its mystique and a bit about its bizarre life cycle is to be violated figuratively and literally as a face hugger shoves itself down your mouth it is perverse and intentionally unnatural and unlike any of its sequels, this movie succeeds in tapping into our primal abstract fear of the unknown and the implicate and implicit anxiety that comes with discovery. It transcends genre and remains the lone masterpiece of the franchise. I don't know. I disagree with that. I think all four films, the original four, are all masterpieces in their own right. I love Alien Resurrection. I love Alien 3. I love them all, and I love the extended cuts of every one of these films, especially Aliens. 
That is just such a good, what a great way to spend the afternoon. You really can't go wrong watching Aliens. It's just, you're guaranteed to have a good time. You know what I mean? I feel like Alien requires a little bit more thought, like a little bit more brain power, while Aliens is just mindless, mindless fun. Truly mindless fun. Um, so yeah, Don K says right from the start, I will say, I agree with uh, much of what my esteemed colleague, David Crow says alien is an undisputed masterpiece that hits the sci-fi horror sweet spot in a way that most films, which have come in its wake have failed to do. And yes, the film is extremely Lovecraftian in its incredibly atmospheric invocation of existential dread and terror of both the deep space and the alien organism itself. But if there had to be a sequel to Alien and the laws of Hollywood dictate that there must, of course, uh, it, could, it couldn't just be a repeat of basically the same story. What James Cameron did so brilliantly with Aliens was take the initial tale told by Ridley Scott and Dan O'Bannon and expanded upon it while preserving most of the mystery surrounding the title Menace itself. He, you know, James Cameron just gives us a little bit more. He gives us a sliver more by saying, hey, these things have a queen and they lay the eggs. That's really because, you know, and that's the other thing, too, the. What what's great about the original Alien is that we watch the whole life cycle, but that's all we get. We know these things start off as eggs. We know they turn into face huggers. We know the face huggers burst through the chest, and out comes the alien. Then the alien grows up. You know what I mean? Like we see the the the, the life cycle, and then James Cameron goes, "Oh, hey, by the way, that is not. That's just a drone. You know what I mean? That's just like one of a million of these things. And the Queen is the one that you really." want to be worried about and so he just sort of takes on his head and he does the same thing with terminator and terminator 2 amy is in the house hola amy how are you hope you are well um he does the same thing with terminator and terminator 2 right I, oh they say it right there as if we scroll down a little bit further i mean that's that's what happens though he takes the initial concept of terminator and then turns it on its head you know, uh, sort of, you know, uh, reverse reverse engineers Terminator into this brilliant thing. Like, okay, now we're going to make Arnold Schwarzenegger the good guy. You know, we're going to introduce a new bad guy that's a more advanced model. I mean, it's just, it's brilliant, man. It's great. That's what Cameron is really good at. You know, as a matter of fact, it's what's a, truly a shame is that they never gave James Cameron his own Star Wars film. Like, give James Cameron... Star Wars Episode Eight. You know what I mean? Let James Cameron be the showrunner. He would turn Star Wars on its head if given the chance. I really think so. I really think he would. Not that maybe that's not something that interests him. He's trying to do his thing, still making those Avatar sequels and whatnot. But you know, he would. He would definitely. He would crush it, man. He would crush it. Cameron did formally jump genres from haunted house in space to military sci-fi. But he retained enough of the brooding horror of the original to make it not just a worthy successor, but a fuller, more epic film in many ways. He did much the same with his own. There you go. Terminator, making it far superior, making a far superior sequel in Terminator to Judgment Day, which is surely a debate for another day. Although I would argue I love I think that first Terminator film is just such a 
it's a that's a masterpiece in and of itself. I, I don't think it's fair that people say that Terminator 2 is the superior film. It's not. They're in the same way that Alien and Aliens go together, that they're, they're like perfectly complement each other. One is much more contained and much one like, you know, you know, uh, sort of makes the world explode. Uh, Krypta is saying, uh, why are you making me choose? And no one's making me choose. I'm not picking a movie myself. I'm saying that it's it's apples and oranges. It's two completely different things here. You can't you can't pick one over the other. They complement each other. In you know, I know that neither film, you know, neither Terminator film or Alien film is a duology. But if they were, Terminator One and Terminator Two and Alien and Aliens are perfect du- duology sort of films in a way. You know, they bookend Alien and Aliens bookend each other perfectly with with those themes that we were talking about of you know motherhood. You know what I mean? It just it, it it's a great contrast in the same way that Terminator does something similar. You know, we're going to make the bad guy the good guy now. It's just, it's great. In Aliens, Cameron expands the mythology just enough to give us some, just to give us more tantalizing details about the xenomorph without over explaining it or shredding the mystery around the species entirely. Ironically, it would be Ridley Scott himself who did that in the awful Prometheus and Alien Covenant years later. And I, have to agree. I, I'm not a big fan of either one of those films. They just I saw one, saw them each one one time in the theater, and I just thought, man, what a what a wasted opportunity. Just give us more alien stuff. We don't need this Prometheus non Prometheus nonsense. And yeah, Alien Covenant just d- d- missed entirely. It Alien Covenant could have been so many things, and instead, it just rehashes so much of what came before, which bums me out. He also expands wonderfully upon the character of Ripley, 100% agree, uh, making her the center of the story while adding a slew. You know, in the first film, Ripley is not the center of the story. She ends up being the hero. She ends up saving the cat. But it's really the, an ensemble. It's an ensemble piece, As even though they're all getting picked up, you know, picked off uh, Agatha Christie style, you know, and then there were none. You, you you have you have this sort of ensemble thing going, and then Ripley in this film, they still keep the ensemble in the in the form of the Space Marines, but it really feels like Ripley is at the center of everything. Not just because she's from the first film, not just because she's a survivor, it, she really anchors everything moving forward. You know, um, making her the center of a story while adding a slew of colorful new cast members who in many cases are more memorable than the crew members of the first film's doomed Nostromo. I would agree with that fully. People don't really think about the, I mean, people forget that Harry Dean Stanton is in Alien sometimes, you know what I mean? Like it's not, or the fact that John Hurt is the guy who gets the alien bursting out of his chest. Everybody remembers Hudson. Everybody remembers, um, Jesus, what's the name of uh, Michael Bean's character? survives to the end hicks everybody remembers hicks you know everybody remembers uh the chick tough chick who who's also in terminator 2 uh ramirez ramirez i think her name is maybe um they are more memorable i would agree while both films are genuine classics in the end aliens has held up over the years as the more satisfying experience totally disagree and you know there's never going to be a time 
where I watch Aliens and just call it a day. I'm going to start with Alien and then I'm going to watch Aliens. And then I'm going to watch Alien 3 and then I'm going to watch Alien Resurrection. you got to watch them all in a row. It's For me, it's one big story. I guess I hate to say it, you know, like I can't just stop, you know, uh, and every, you know, every installment feels like a legitimate, you know, the legitimate continuation of what happens to Ridley. You know what I mean? Ridley, Ripley is what I meant. Um, thank you. I'm glad you appreciate the review and enjoy your dinner. And I appreciate you coming in to hit the like. We got, we got Chris in the house. He says, evening all. Easy Q answered. It's Alien. Amy says, Alien 1979 is such a timeless classic. Aliens, up the ante, packed with action horror. Couldn't agree more. It does. Does up the ante, but the, not making it better, not making it more superior, but, you know, good. Um, Donald says, Alien started the universe building. Yeah. It definitely did because Alien is really like a stand feel. It's like a perfectly contained standalone film. If there is one movie, I mean, I guess you can stop after Alien, but you're. Ne I'm never going to watch Aliens without watching Alien first, and I'm never going to watch Alien Three without watching Aliens. You know what I mean? So yeah, and it's true. And then Dark Horse came in and just like sort of, you know blew everything up and suddenly like we're getting so much stuff you know learning so much uh, adding of of story elements into the you know and then introducing predators and yada 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 all right this 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 segment is called the most expendable crew david says don i'll agree that aliens is a worthy sequel but as a sequel it can only ever be a copy great point david an extension of the original genius. Great point. And while Aliens is certainly more epic, I would hardly call it more satisfying. I agree with that as well. For starters, there are characters you mistakenly claim are more memorable than the original crew. That point I do agree with Don on. Um, David says, I grant, I'll grant you that Aliens Ensemble is colorful. But in the same way, stock characters on a Saturday morning cartoon can be colorful. Okay, point, point to David on that one. That is also valid. As is often the case in Cameron's screenplays, the characters are broadly drawn archetypes who speak almost entirely an on-the-nose dialogue with all the subtlety of a villain waving a gun on the Titanic as it sinks. Another point to David. Totally agree with that. They do feel... Like they are broadly drawn archetypes, but that's maybe why we're so quick to remember them. Uh, Vasquez, not Ramirez Vasquez. Thank you, Chris. I see, I see your comment there. Um, that's why we remember them. They're easier to remember because they are, in fact, archetypes. They're, that, that's, that's very, very true. I'm just like, you know, stocky ar archetypes. Um, the effect is definitely thrilling the first few times you watch Aliens, but after viewing the film more than twice, my mind is left to drift over the trite, uh, the triteness of these hapless Marines. I, no way, man. I, I never, that, that never happens to me. I never get sick of them in that kind of way. That's probably why my favorite of the bunch is Bill Paxton's Hudson, a caricature 
a character in cowardice who still always lands the laugh. He also sums up the surface level appeal of this entertaining spectacle. We're on the express elevator to hell going down. Um, it's important to note that Bill Paxton is the only guy to have been killed by an alien, a predator, and a terminator. He's in all three universe films. He's in he's Hudson in Aliens. He plays a cop in Predator 2, I forget his name, and he's one of the punks that uh, encounters Arnold Schwarzenegger's Terminator at the beginning of the Terminator films in, in the first film. And he knew he knew James Cameron. They were they were like set set painters or something, going back a ways. And when you know he got when he started directing his films, he you know started directing films. He started casting Bill Paxton and stuff. Conversely, the cast of characters in Alien feel painfully real. Okay, that's I yes. Yes, okay, fine, yeah. Created during the tail end of New Hollywood's golden age of 70s cinema, there is nothing false or showy about any of these performances. They're all underplayed to a degree. Yes, even talking over each other. But that is by design. Going into Alien in 1979, you wouldn't know who the hero of the story is and might very well assume it's Tom Skerritt since he's the captain and had appeared in popular 70s TV shows. By contrast, Weaver was com a completely unknown when she played Ripley. I, you know, now I want to watch it. Uh, a survivor who, uh, who preserved, preserved, persevered, 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 sorry, I suck, before Final Girls became a convention onto themselves. Yeah, she is kind of the first... She's one of the first final final girls. You know who else is? There's two others that I think are are important to note from the 80s and the 60s. You have you have Barbara from Out of the Living Dead, who many sort of have written off as kind of like you know like uh, a scaredy cat. You know she like kind of falls apart, but when in reality. She's a woman suffering from PTSD from the trauma of seeing her, her brother murdered and then manages to muster up enough, you know, courage at the end to sacrifice herself to save her, her, her fellow uh, female survivor in uh, Helen Cooper, you know, and it's all for nothing in the end. But she, there's a strength there that doesn't get talked about enough. Then you have Ripley, obviously. And then in the 80s, um, you have Sarah, played by Lori Cadill, Cadilly, Cadill, in Day of the Dead. She is also sort of a fine, not a final girl, but she's like a strong feminine heroine kick-ass chick. Same thing with uh, Galen Ross, who plays Francine in uh, Dawn of the Dead. There's strong female characters. But it's really Ripley who who sort of rules the roost in, in this. and and takes the cake um thank you amy amy has provided bill paxton's character is jerry lambert in predator 2 thank you much appreciated and i think that's wonderful that donald has named his white cat paxton we miss bill paxton i miss bill paxton rest in peace gone too soon cut down in his prime bill paxton brilliant friggin actor 
Um, Vasquez is also in Lethal Weapon 2. I know she was in Near Dark. She she played uh, Lance, you know, Lance Henriksen, who plays Bishop in, in uh, Aliens, also plays her sort of like her boyfriend in Near Dark. Near Dark is a, I agree, Near Dark is awesome. But that is a discussion for another time. So where were we with that? Yeah, they're all underplayed to a degree, even talking over each other, but that is by design. Going into Alien in 1979, you wouldn't know who the hero of the story was. We already read this part. Might be Tom Skerritt. By contrast, Weaver was a completely unknown. We read that part. She's even, okay. However, she is only a survivor in the first movie, not an action hero. Yes, and that's true. James Cameron turns Ripley from being a survivor. She starts the film as a survivor who is the only one who has experience with these things. And by the end, she transforms herself into, uh, you know, an action hero, you know, sort of trial by fire style, even learning how to operate the, uh, the assault rifle by, you know, Hicks helps her to offer, operate the assault rifle played by uh, freaking uh, Michael Bean, another brilliant actor who we do not see enough of. I mean, we see him plenty, but man, I wish we, we, we got even more Bane. You know what I'm saying? Um, still, right down to the legitimate grievances between this group's upstairs and downstairs dynamic with, I, I don't know, this guy just passed away too, really sad. Great, great actor. Yafit Kuto. I hope I didn't butcher his name. May he rest in peace. Uh, Parker and Harry Dean Stanton's Brett complaining about the bonus situation. Yeah, these guys, they feel more like real, just sort of like real grunts. You know, they don't feel like archetypes at all. You know, um, there is a much more tactile conflict amongst the cast that makes this fuller, that makes this a fuller ensemble and thereby more immersive. They may not be Marines, but they are tragically human in their reactions to the unbelievable. And that is not even getting into the brilliance of Ian Holmes Ash, who might be the best rep representation of the insidious implementation of capitalistic control over labor ever put to screen. It's so true in the mere fact that he's representing a company and the company is almost it's trying to appear human, but is totally not human. They are cold and calculating like the robot that Ash is. You know what I mean? Um, it's pretty friggin', it's pretty friggin' brilliant. You know, in the same way that this idea that capitalism, when you think about capitalism here, and I don't want to get political or whatever, uh, but I'm going to say this. Capitalism, when it's perfectly designed, it, it, when capitalism is working perfectly, it's simply meant to make the most amount of money without taking human, you know, human welfare into account. So if it if you can make more money harming the environment, harming people, causing people to have cancer, but it's still turning you a, a buck, then you're always going to side with the buck and not with the human welfare. And that's like capitalism. That's like capitalism on riot. That's like the raw, pure, greedy capitalism that everybody, you know, the uh, tests and hates. Capitalism is not a bad thing. It's a good thing when it's when it has checks and balances. But without checks and balances, the human element is not accounted for at all. And we see that to a T in the original Alien. The entire crew is expendable, as Ripley will find out when she goes into the mother's computer. 
Um, I did not know that there was a band that Bill Paxton had a band called Martini Ranch. That is pretty cool. I will check that out. He's great in a film called The Dark Backward uh, with Judd Nelson, directed by um, Adam Rifkin, who did Detroit Rock City, one of my favorite films of all time, even though I'm not a, really a Kiss guy. You know, I've never seen Dark Star. I know that da that's Dan O'Bannon's first film with John Carpenter when they were still at uh, USC Film School. I definitely do need to check that out. All right, hold on. Back to back to this, though, real quick. Um, uh, right. So Holmes Ash, who might be the best representation of the insidious implementation of capitalistic control over labor ever put to screen. The traitor in these blue collars ranks is an honest to God robot who's literally there to divide them for conquest and the company's bottom line. I mean, it is, it's brutal, man. It's really a brutal, brutal situation. They're, they're deep in space. They, they trust their lives to this ship, and the ship is trying to kill them. The company they work for, their livelihood, is trying to kill them. Don says, I will concede the more realistic development of the characters in Alien, but I enjoy the camaraderie and the banter amongst the, uh, the colonial marines. Whether it's uh, while it's true that some of them really don't amount to much more than cannon fodder, I would argue that maybe they're more fleshed out and they feel more real and alien. But I would say that just about every all the characters are cannon fodder to that extent as well. Um, I, I feel like there's more going on there than Cameron might get credit for. I don't. In this way, I don't. They they are also fodder. I also do like the ensemble feel of it all and the fact that these characters all go into the situation having no idea of what's ahead of them, with most of them meeting it courageously, with notable exceptions, of course. There is something about seeing characters in a film charge headlong into an impossible situation always, that always pulls at this viewer. I mean, another allegory that's never spoken about is the, you know, the, the, the connection to the Vietnam War. Aliens is kind kind of has this commentary about like the American mindset of we're going to go into a place where we don't know how to necessarily fight the enemy that we want to fight. You know, when Americans, you know, when American troops went over to Vietnam to fight these dudes, they were fighting them in the jungles and they were not equipped for jungle warfare. You know, they're like dealing with like foot rot and all sorts of crazy stuff. And you know, the Viet Cong and the Vietnamese and, you know, all the different elements, Cambodians, everybody who they fought against knew how to fight in the jungle. They knew they had trained that, 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 you know, U.S. troops never got. And when they went in there, they just had their asses handed them, you know, over and over and over again. It was an unwinnable war. And that's, you see that same sort of situation in aliens they're going into an unwinnable situation where the only way to win is to nuke the planet and so that's what ripley does she nukes the planet in the same way she you know nukes the nostromo the only way to deal with this stuff is just destroy it. it's an unwinnable situation um chris says also, hr geiger's life cycle egg creation is only seen by deleted scene in the director's cut. Geiger didn't work out or design anything for aliens. Um, 
Cameron designed and developed the Queen with Stan Winston. Right. Yes, this is right. <clears throat> um, although we were talking about that earlier, does the, that, that deleted scene with Tom Skerritt, does that sort of still fit into Alien, what happens in Aliens, you know, with everybody glued to the wall? I think it kind of does. It's a drone just doing what it's supposed to do for its queen, even though it's not near its queen. It's setting these, it's setting Tom Scared up to be impregnated with a face hugger. There's just no face hugger that comes. And so Tom Scared says, you know, what does he say, like kill me or something? It's a great scene. It's a shame that it was cut out initially. I'm glad that they did eventually reinsert it. Um, some of the secondary characters go on little journeys of their own too from Gorman, William Hope, to Vasquez, uh, Jeanette Goldstein, and even Hudson has a moment or two to shine as he finally finds his courage towards the end of the film. Watching Aliens, it feels like most of the major or secondary characters get some kind of payoff. If there's one, that is, yes, great point. If there's one major flaw I find with Alien, it's just that the second half of the movie basically just mows everyone down. Yeah. I would, uh, yes, I agree with that. I agree with that. Uh, one after the other, they really, that's what, what I was saying before about how they, they, they amount to nothing but fodder as well in both scenarios. But the difference is Cameron takes these stock archetypes and pays them off, all of them. They all get paid off. And we don't really get that in Alien. It's true. It's sort of, it is in, in that way, Alien is a bit anticlimactic. Um, but it doesn't take away from the fact that it's a masterpiece. So watching Aliens, it feels like most of the major secondary characters get some kind of payoff. There's one major flaw I find with Aliens that the second half of the movie is basically just mows everyone down. Whenever, one after another, which I suppose is suitable for the overall tone of despair and nihilism. But it makes for a less satisfactory film in some ways. I, yeah. And I agree with you wholeheartedly about the brilliance of Ash, which is why I'm glad that Cameron went in a different direction with Bishop. In a way, that right, that right then and there, he does the same thing that he does in Terminator and Terminator 2. The, the android Ash is bad in the first film, and Bishop is good in the second film, in the same way that Terminator and Terminator 2 go from, you have Arnold going from evil to good. So, yeah. It, it works. That works for me. Um, and I agree with you wholeheartedly about the brilliance of Ash, which is why I'm glad that Cameron went in a different direction with Bishop, played by Lance Henriksen. The character is just ambiguous enough to keep one guessing throughout the film whether he is true to his word that he cannot harm humans or whether it's all an act. A nice twist on the evolution of Ash in the first film. I didn't think about that part, though. That's right, because Ripley is very, very skeptical uh, and very untrusting of Bishop in this film. And as it turns out, he ends up being a really good dude. And in a way, he's more human than the humans themselves in certain, certain aspects. The more perfect organism. David says, you are right, Don. Vasquez is a wonderfully badass character, and so are most of the aliens' troop. In fact, it is hard to overlook just how badass Weaver's Ripley became in the film, beginning as a woman suffering from trauma and ending with a cinematic embodiment of mama bear ferocity. 
Get away from her, you bitch. One of the just phenomenal, one of the best cinematic lines out there, right? Uh, had to be why Weaver got an Oscar nomination for an action. It's not only is it an action movie sequel, but it's also like a horror sci-fi action film. You know, you don't, I mean, that's really not Oscar material, generally speaking. But, you know, who cares about the Oscars? They don't know anything. Sometimes movies that win the Oscars just baffle me. While other times you have performances that are completely overlooked, like Willem Dafoe in Shadow of the Vampire playing Max Trek as an actual Nosferatu vampire. That Why that wasn't nominated for an Oscar and when, why did that, that didn't win the Oscar, I will never understand. It's really, really, really sad to me, I think. Um, yet for all the quotables like that, as well as those of the affirmationed poor doomed Hudson and precocious Newt, they come at night, mostly. Uh, I much prefer the messiness of Alien. Veronica Cartwright's Lambert simply shutting down as the alien tears Parker apart before inevitably coming back for her. Skerritt's Dallas meekly resigning himself to his fate as he reluctantly goes into the vents. And of course, Ripley, who shows cool cunning and irresistible command when under pressure. It is true. She sort of like rises to the challenge as, as this whole you know, situation is turning into uh, a disaster, but whose only act of her heroism to talk about Ripley and the when she when when uh, rising to to the rising to the command um, under pressure, her only act of heroism is the quirk of going back into a deteriorating spaceship for a cat, which is the basis of the whole philosophy of save the cat, which is the idea that you make your character do something really good in order to in order for the audience to like them in this case save an animal would be a great way to show us that this character is you know a, a good person even if they're doing like so if you see a character that's doing stuff that's like really bad or like really morally bankrupt or whatever but then they do something like save an animal you know that they're not all bad it's like to tell you something about the character and so you know and it lends a lot to the idea of my favorite my favorite save the cat query is is reanimator and herbert west and does he save the cat and if you've never seen reanimator i highly suggest you do super super good thing to, to see super good film to see donald says ash's gurgling head on the table was fucked up and as you know he has white blood and the white blood looks a lot like nut right just looks like a nut and that represents, you know, sort of another aspect of the sexual politics of a film like Alien, um, or I should say the sexual violence of Alien. Um, but if we're discussing characters, I think we're both glossing over a big one. The alien itself or the xenomorph. You, you're fairly dinged, you fairly dinged Scott for offering unsatisfying explanations for his and Geiger's nightmares in the prequels. But Cameron did it first in Aliens. It's so true. It's such a simple thing to explain. You know, Ridley Scott tries to give us this whole big explanation with, you know, these world building engineers and Prometheus and yada, yada, yada. When in reality, all you got to do is just say, they, where do the eggs come from? They come from a queen. There's a queen. End of story. 
You don't need anything else. Don't give us any other explanation than that. And we're done. You know what I mean? Um, but Cameron did it first in Aliens, right down to the dubbing the creatures xenomorphs. Okay, I did not know that. Okay, so they do call them xenomorphs, but they do it in Aliens. In the original film, they don't. In the first film, it's really unknowable how intelligent the star beast is. Is the creature just a feral animal hunting characters on instinct, or is it a dispassionate predator who understands its prey and their inadequate technology? I, I mean, I think we know the, that answer already because the, the, we go and we see the space jockey has a hole in its chest from a, you know, a face hugger pushing its way out of, you know, whatever chest burster coming out of it. Um, and we see these eggs. It looks like an infestation. It doesn't look like they came from that ship in the first place in that kind of way. I mean, they leave, they leave so much unsaid. Oh, this is cool. Just how intelligent is the alien? I'm not going to, I'm going to save that for another day as well. Cause that's an interesting thing to look at. Um, if you're just joining us, by the way, please make sure to like, subscribe, leave a comment. Please make sure you're subscribed to the channel. Check out our memberships. We now have memberships available on the YouTube space. Uh, it's a great way to get involved if you're not interested in doing Patreon. Um, it is really unknowable how intelligent the Star Beast is. We'll, we'll take a look at that another day. And is it a feral animal? Um, or is it uh, something that understands its prey? And what exactly are its designs for its victims who vanish without a trace, at least in the theatrical cut? We know what happens in the director's cut because we find Dallas strewn up. And I think it was a real disservice to the film to not leave that in because it is kind of like, you are kind of like wondering, like just rips. I mean, I guess it's assumed that the alien just sort of eats, eats its victims. Cameron literally turns them into insects and aliens. It's so true, man. It, they go from having an insect-like metamorphosis, but still feel very much like aliens, like an or like an alien sort of entity in the first film. You know, they feel way more Lovecraftian. But in the second film, they just feel like bugs. You know, it's kind of like it's Starship Troopers before Starship Troopers, you know. Um, repeatedly calling the Marines mission a bug hunt, which always makes me think also of Starship Troopers. The unstoppable creature in the first movie turns out to simply be a drone, a literal worker bee or an ant in a colony of xenomorphs with a single queen and countless simple-minded minions. Scott and Geiger's alien is almost godlike or perhaps demonic given its sexual undertones and is described as the perfect organism. Aliens removes that mystique, turning the monster into a giant cockroach that can be mowed down in large numbers if you have big enough guns. And I'm perfectly okay with that. That's a great example of reversing something, turning it on its head and giving us, taking us in a fresh direction. Doesn't muddle, like I said, doesn't muddle with anything that we see in Alien but then adds all that stuff and ends up changing what that xenomorph is while still keeping all the mythology from the first film. It's great. Don says, 
I have to say, I like Ripley's evolution in Aliens and even more so in the director's cut where the information about her having a daughter gives a whole other layer because she's frozen for like 57 years and she doesn't get to see her daughter grow up. Uh, having Her having her daughter gives a whole other layer to her quest to save Newt in the film. This is why I only like watching the director's cut because it really does. It, it does add urgency to her quest um, in, in motherhood, in surrogate motherhood. Um, but to be fair, I suppose we're talking about the original theatrical cuts. Even there, Ripley starts out in a completely different and much darker place, not really interested in helping anyone. But her basic compassion towards her fellow humans finally comes to the surface. She stands as the one beacon of decent humanity in an otherwise very hostile universe. I'll again agree that there is some majestic and hor something majestic and horrifying about the mystique of Alien in the original film, but I don't think that Cameron completely removes all the mystery from it. Those eggs did have to come from somewhere, after all. Why not a queen? And even if we see the species as more of a hive culture, it doesn't take away from their predatory nature or what appears to be their exceptional intelligence. And it still leaves the ultimate nature and purpose of the aliens unexplained. Meeting the queen and aliens doesn't necessarily undercut the fact that we still don't know at the end of the film what their agenda is, nor should we. 100% agree with that. Um, Chris says, also there's a color code to the Xeno in its face hugger originally to be translucent. Chest burster form is yellow. Uh, sheds becomes adult size mimicking host, uh, but it's black. Has little life left like an insect. Interesting. That's interesting. Um, Aliens actually re-emphasizes the remarkable adaptability and cleverness of this deadly race. The organism in the original film made quick work out of the crew of the Nostromo. When confronted with the first, uh, sorry, when confronted with the first, the colonist, when confronted, this is not written by, right. When confronted with first the colonists and then the space marines, the creatures analyze the situation and ascertain that their new victims or enemies must be met with overwhelming force in lieu of having weapons themselves. Although their entire body could be considered a weapon for sure. They've got giant sharp scorpion tails and acid for blood and projectile secondary jaws and you know razor sharp claws. They are predators and part of a hive culture, but they think, they strategize. That gives them a different spin for sure, but kind of like alien, they're extraterrestrial velociraptors. But one, uh, uh, it gives them a different spin for sure, but one that is just as terrifying as the godlike creature in Alien. The best of the Alien franchise. David says, I respect that. And for the type of movie that Cameron wanted to make, it worked perfectly. There is little argument that Cameron pinpointed the likely best way to expand and conclude the story. After all, that, that, and it does, it does conclude in Aliens as a, a two film story, a duology, if you will. And 
Had they never made another film, it would have been fine. Just those two films. It just would have been perfect. A perfect double feature. You know what I mean? Um, after all, the mystery of the creature's gruesome life cycle is lost after the first film. David Fincher attempted to return to Scott's aesthetic with Alien 3 to dire results. It goes back to just having one alien as the enemy uh, against an unarmed prison colony. And Scott himself struggled with his decades later prequels. Thus, it is hard to knock Cameron's action-heavy alternative too much. I, yeah. Nonetheless, I prefer the, as you say, majesty of Alien and the sensation that you're watching something grotesque, invasive, and strangely beautiful in its fatalism. I'd also point out that the creature and its world never looked more grimly evocative than in Geiger and Scott's hands. There's a reason the Last Supper scene with Hertz Kane remains the most famous scene in any of these films. Still, both films are obviously better than what came afterward, though I must admit to having a soft spot for Prometheus. The ideas introduced to explain where the xenomorph and space jockey came from in the, that movie are fascinating, and the visuals and cast were mostly top-notch. Alas, the screenplay threatened to derail it all. It is still a very interesting mess. However, as opposed to the utter failure of Alien Covenant and other movies. I'll leave it then on this. If you really like the deleted subplot of Amanda Ripley, Ellen's daughter mentioned to have grown up and died during her mother's cryo-freeze in Aliens, might I recommend the video game Alien Isolation? That's right, they did an Alien video game. More so than Scott's own prequels, it is able to conjure up the dread of being hunted in a confined space by such a creature. It is the best alien anything in the last 35 years. And it was all about invoking that original perfect organism of a film. Don says, to address your last point first, I don't play video games, neither do I. Uh, so I'll have to pass on alien isolation. But it is interesting how some of these properties have more success in extending themselves through other media besides movies or TV. I imagine there's a really good novel out there that takes place in the alien universe. Do you know of any, David? Um, <clears throat> too bad the cat wasn't a flurkin. Uh, what is a flurkin? I have never heard this word before. Zambot's in the house. What's up, Zambot? He says... Second one ends the same way, escaping countdown, then surprise alien stowaway appears. It um a little bit, but it does it in a much more grandiose kind of way, I think. You know, uh the, the first two are perfection. You know, three three does have some rough edges. Four people a lot of people don't like four. I think four is so good. Really, really enjoy four. Um the movies post-Aliens do not exist. That I disagree with, as I just stated. But Cameron did do a fantastic job. Um, I think we've come around to where we started in that we both recognize the inherent high quality of what Scott and Cameron achieved with these two films. And I do think that Aliens did conclude uh, this story just as Terminator 2 ended the story as well. And, you know, that is to say 
even though people love Alien 3 and Alien 4, there has not been a movie that is so revered as Aliens was in the, in the way that I guess you could kind of say that the franchise truly does fully wrap up with Aliens in 1986 in the same way that Terminator 2 sort of wraps up the Terminator saga, even though we got four more sequels that never, ever, ever seem to land, no matter how much we, we want them to. You know what I mean? They it just they they just keep falling flat on their face, and maybe that's because James Cameron finished the story, finished the story in T two. We don't need to see what happens past that. Um, Terminator two ended the story as well, and Cameron's elegant endings only point out just how difficult it was for later filmmakers to try and continue both in various failed sequels. For the record, I was so excited about Prometheus initially. And then there were some, uh, uh, and there were some fascinating ideas contained in that film, but the execution of them was a major letdown. It, it sure was. My last argument would be that Alien is a concept-driven film and Aliens is a character-driven film. As we said earlier, making it truly Ripley's story. The emotional payoff of Ripley's journey in Aliens makes that the more enjoyable of the two movies for me in the long run. But there's no question that no movie I can think of offhand, not even Cameron's masterful sequel, quite captures the ice-cold existential horror of Alien. While we may differ on which of the two films is better, I think we can probably agree Alien may accidentally be the best H.P. Lovecraft film ever made. Chris says, originally the alien Xeno was to be graceful in movement, a.k.a. a ballerina mime. And it was played by this African fellow, super tall, skinny dude. who was I don't think he was a stuntman. I'm not sure he was an actor. Um, Sydney says, what's up, man? Do you have the Graphic novel of Alien released in 1980 through the heavy metal zine. It is so good. I have not, I'm not familiar with that. Um, I will definitely look into it though. Sounds pretty cool. Um, Donald concurs that the graphic novel is awesome. That's great. Um, so yeah, so the last argument here from Don is that it, that Alien might accidentally be the best HP Lovecraft film ever made. And I would, only argue that 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 title really belongs to Reanimator. Editor's note: David does not know of any good Alien novels, but is aware that uh, is aware the Scott film is better than any official Lovecraft adaptation. Um, I've not read any Alien novels myself, so I don't really know if there are any good ones. But there are for sure some great comic books. There's even a great crossover comic book it's alien versus predator versus terminator it's a really fun story and it does have ripley in it it's pretty cool um so i guess that's it for today's show i mean that's how this is kind of going to work you know in you know um if everything goes according to plan is that we're going to just do topics like this in addition to everything else that we do on a daily basis and try to keep it to around an hour and then be out. So if you enjoyed this, please make sure to like, share, subscribe, 
check out the memberships that we're now offering on YouTube. Uh, and if that's not your bag, check out the Patreon. I'll leave it. I'll, I'll leave you with this. Hey guys, what's going on? It's Jeff. So I've decided to make a Patreon. What is Patreon? I don't know how to define a Patreon. Let me look it up. Patreon is a membership platform that makes it very easy for creators to get paid for the things that they're already creating. I want to do it full-time. I want this to be my full-time job. In my efforts to make that happen, I've set up this platform. Is it going to work? Is it gonna be successful? I don't know, but I would rather try and crash and burn than not try at all. The goal is to create enough passive revenue so that I can continue to do this full-time, uninterrupted. Why? Because I love to do this. I love creating content. I love making videos. I love shooting films. I love doing podcasts. In case you couldn't tell, I love to talk and I never shut the fuck up. <laughs> so right now I've kept the Patreon incredibly simple. There's two tiers and that may change in the future. The Murdergram is a simple way to extend support for all of the hours and hours of free content on the channel for nothing more than a dollar. 38 cents goes to Patreon. What's a buck 38, eh? It's less than a cup of coffee, but it's a great way that you can show support for very little effort. When you divide that dollar 38 by the hours and hours and hours of time spent listening to this endless drivel of content, the dollar cost average works out. Next up is the YouTube casualty for $6.66. The YouTube casualty is loaded to the gills. Enjoy the archive ad-free as well as ad-free early access to special docu-style podcast videos, music reaction commentaries, and the like a month before they drop on YouTube, loaded with ads, I might add. You're also going to get exclusive content and behind-the-scenes content that is not available on YouTube or anywhere else. So you get to peek behind the veil. And believe me, there's a couple of choice pieces. Most of all, more than anything, whether you join the Patreon or not, I just want to thank each and every one of you that comes to the channel, that watches all the shows, that leaves comments, that participates that subscribes, that's really the most important thing. This is just trying to find a way to earn a living as an artist. And with that, thank you for my TED Talk. Join the Patreon, because we need you! 66 cents.